Brother, Chapter 3, Part 1, Cap and Gown. I got an email from my school that my cap and gown were ready to be picked up in the main building on campus. The semester was almost over, but grades wouldn't be posted until just before or after graduation. At my current standing, I was going to pass all my classes with an A. Some of the class credits counting toward my degree were transfer courses from over eight years earlier. They were the few random courses I managed to pass but barely remember taking. I had no idea if they would use the many Fs I had accumulated toward my final grade point average. Adding that abysmal record to my grades would mean I would barely get my degree. If they only used the grades I earned recently, I'd be graduating with honors. The only part that mattered in the grand scheme was that I would graduate. These last few years had felt like two separate lifetimes, and I wanted to be recognized for whom I had become, not held back by whom I had been. Graduating with honors would be tangible proof of the distance I had created, separating my past mistakes from my future success. As I walked across campus toward graduation registration, I thought about how much it would mean if those golden ropes, designating me as summa cum laude, were sitting in the bag when I arrived. I walked into the main hall and saw a long line weaving its way from booth to booth. There were neatly sorted piles of alumni swag-like pens and license plate decals. It all seemed rather silly, but if this is what tuition was paying for, I would use those pens until they ran dry. As we circled the room, I could see the rack of caps and gowns toward the end of the line, looming like a dark cloud about to rain on everything I had worked so hard to accomplish. If my cap and gown didn't have honors ropes, I might as well walk with a giant dunce cap. A feeling I'd later learn was the people-pleasing mentality that I had previously coped with by drinking excessively. Now that I was sober, I had merely replaced one addiction for another and was now attempting to cope with my insecurities through perfectionism. I continued to accept each congratulatory swag bag with a smile. Still, my anxiety was increasing with each step closer to the last booth and the final decision that would determine my honorary status or not. Name a short brunette woman asked without looking up from her clipboard. She was chewing gum that I imagined had also lost its flavor several years ago. I began picturing her in the candy aisle of the Quick and Go, scanning the wall of different gum flavors before ultimately deciding on the Arctic Mountain Blast. She would take her new prize to the counter, pay, and then put the same piece she was now chewing in her mouth before she could even hit the door to leave. The cool mint flavor was refreshing, and the texture was soft and chewy. She liked it so much that she would chew on it until lunch. She would take it out of her mouth and fold it into the original wrapper. After lunch, she would continue munching on the piece she had started with. It still had some flavor left, but the texture was becoming less chewy, replaced with a bit of tough resistance. By the time dinner rolled around, she would be relieved to take it out of her mouth. After all, she had been chewing the same piece all day. She would finish her meal, brush her teeth, and go to sleep. The following day she would wake up and start getting ready for work, but then inexplicably, she would put that same piece of gum back in her mouth. It now tasted more like her own spit than it did an ice-capped mountain, and the blue coloring of the gum wrapper was beginning to flake off. She would place her gum in a small plastic container. It wouldn't do anything for the flavor or the texture, but she would feel like she had done something nice for herself. As days passed, chewing the gum would become routine. She had completely forgotten what it initially tasted like, chewing only to chew as the experience had become devoid of all joy. A shiver ran up my spine as I wondered how long I would have until my new career would start to feel the same way. I shook my head and blinked several times, 
bringing myself out of thought and back to her question. Denver Hamilton, I said, and then I spelled my last name for her slowly. H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N. She started thumbing through her clipboard of names, and my mind began to wander again. I was weeks away from you and my brother watching me walk across the stage to accept my bachelor's degree, and I would finally be welcomed as being like you both. I would no longer be just the little brother or the baby of the family. I would be a successful man. That's why I couldn't graduate in a dunce cap. I had to have a 4.0. I had to remove all doubt about the validity of my degree and prove that I hadn't just slipped through the cracks here. I had to be at the top of my class. This was atonement for years of drug abuse and spiritual wandering. Without those damned ropes, I would still be tied to my past and feel like a failure by some measure. I would achieve this great honor, and through it, I would grow out of the shadow cast by my brother and all of his success. As the gum lady continued slowly tracing the names on the clipboard with her finger looking for my name, a brief memory crossed my mind of something my brother said to me when I was younger. We were playing horse in the driveway of our childhood home. We were standing under the basketball hoop, the one he had painted the words Shannon's house of paint across the backboard in blue spray paint. He had just beaten me by shooting the ball over the back of the backboard from the yard. He caught my air and shot before it could bounce down the hill, and then he tucked the ball under his right arm and stood over me. At the time, he was 18 years old, so beating a 9-year-old so soundly shouldn't have come as much of a surprise. He routinely enjoyed reminding me, You will never be as good as me at anything you ever do. Perhaps this was just the kind of shit-talking that went down at Shannon's house of pain, but those words burrowed their way deep into my medial prefrontal cortex and began defecating on all the neurons that lived there. Those words would sometimes act as a motivating force, but more often than not, they would encourage me to give up when it looked like I might fail. I idolized my brother. Since he was so much older than I was, he was, in some ways, more of a second father figure than a traditional brother closer in age might have been. I copied everything about him, down to how he would alternate black, low-cut Nike socks over white, mid-calf Nike socks. Even to this day, if you look at our handwriting, it looks nearly identical. I'm sure it was annoying from his perspective that I had become a tiny carbon copy of him and wanted to follow in every footstep he would ever take. My brother was a surprisingly decent artist who liked to doodle little cartoon characters. I would take his doodles and redraw them thousands of times. Eventually, you couldn't tell the difference between his drawings and mine. I branched out and started looking for my own things to draw. I bought all the how-to-draw books at every book fair the school ever held. I also drew every character from every mad magazine we had boxed in the basement. I remember Shannon was furious when he found out I was using the magazines because they were a part of a collection handed down to him by our family friend, and I had folded the back covers and stressed the spines. After finishing all of the magazines, I had essentially taken a master's class in how to draw. I had incorporated hundreds of styles across different media and was making original creations. My brother didn't share the same enthusiasm for my newly acquired talent. As it became apparent that I was getting better than he was, he stopped drawing. He would tell me that drawing was a waste of time and that I was stupid for spending so much time on it. He stopped drawing altogether, and if you asked him today, he would tell you he couldn't even draw a stick figure. He would rather never lift another pencil in his life than admit I had gotten good at something. To be clear, it wasn't just that I had gotten good at it, I was better at it than he was. He rationalized that I was only better at it because he didn't draw anymore. Mind you this was coming from someone I viewed as the most extraordinary person alive. His opinion of me meant everything, and I was now torn between the thing I had learned to love and the validation I sought from my brother. I was confused about how something he had taught me to love had become a stupid waste of time. 
I started to feel highly conflicted as I went through stages of feeling proud that I could do something he couldn't, but then back to a sense of shame for having wasted my time getting good at something nobody cared about. I remember dealing with these feelings while we were still adjusting to life in Texas. I went into my art supplies and noticed all my drawings were gone. On a poster-sized piece of paper, I had drawn the entire city of Springfield with every character I could remember from The Simpsons. I had stacks of celebrity caricatures and weird mashups of cartoon characters drawn in the style of different production companies, like Bugs Bunny, if drawn by Hanna-Barbera. Several years of my favorite drawings were all missing. I later discovered that you had thrown them away and didn't even realize what they were. You likely thought of them as a mess I hadn't cleaned up. Between my brother telling me drawing was a waste of time and you confirming my art was just trash, I stopped drawing every day. My search for meaning quickly dissolved into an existential crisis as I bomb-ripped my way through high school. I hated school so much that I graduated a year early. I was immediately confronted with navigating the complexities of adulthood, freedom versus responsibility. I would continually struggle to find the correct balance between the two. I would slip further into addiction as more time passed between finishing high school and achieving the vagueness of successful adulthood. I signed up for business administration classes, thinking they would teach me how to own a skate shop, but nothing I was learning seemed applicable. I stopped going and failed every class that semester. I had a friend, Rose, who was vacationing to Costa Rica for a few weeks and was paying for the trip herself. She bought a condominium, fixed it up, and sold it. She made thousands of dollars in profit, which she put into her next property. Any amount remaining she would pay toward her vacations. I decided then and there that I would go to school for real estate. I knew nothing about it, didn't look like a professional and couldn't imagine anyone buying a home from me, but I did like the idea of making lots of money and going to Costa Rica. That upcoming semester I signed up for a full helping of real estate classes and started mentally spending all the money I hadn't yet made. That dream lasted less than a week. Those classes were full of the driest, most repellently boring material I'd ever read. It was academic torture. I considered dropping all my courses, but you'd stop paying my rent if I did. If I just failed them, on the other hand, it would buy me the semester to formulate a plan. There was, however, one class in particular that I continued attending. I had sat next to a pretty girl who was into rock and roll, and she dressed the part. Part 2. Storage Sheds and Whiskey Her name was Megan, and she lived with her brother and a couple of their friends nearby. She referred to their home as the band house because they had a band, and the living room was where they jammed. They were in need of a vocalist, and she invited me over to audition. Now, I'm as much of a vocalist as anyone who can blow air out of their mouth as a harmonica player. I can make noises, but the verdict is out on whether or not it can be considered singing. At the time, I prided myself on my ability to play guitar, but I had a few songs with lyrics, so I figured I'd give the audition a shot. Megan introduced me to my future best friend Dean, she introduced me to the band Muse, and she showed me what a night of cocaine was like. Walking out of a strip club after a night of binge snorting and being surprised by the mid-morning sun will always remind me of Megan. I had amassed a grade point average of 0.25 and was officially on academic probation by the end of the semester. I couldn't possibly care any less because the band was doing well. We called ourselves Scoundrel Pop and played a sort of jazz-funk fusion. It was fueled by psychoactives and it remains one of the greatest bands I've ever played in. The scales had tipped entirely to the side of adulthood freedom as I continually ignored all my responsibilities. Unfortunately, I was the only one in the band who was ignoring their responsibilities. Our guitar player earned his bachelor's and was headed to graduate school out of state. 
He was dating our drummer, so she left with him. A few weeks later, our bassist and my best friend, Dean, invited me to a night of depravity at the Renaissance Fair. We showed up just as the fair was closing. All the characters and patrons were building their camps for the night, and we found a spot for our tent near a group of seasoned veterans. We mixed hard drugs with home-brewed bathtub mead and walked around in the dark. It's easier to distinguish reality from hallucination when you're in the safety of your own home, but we were surrounded by fat minotaurs and sparkly river fairies. Luckily, I was with my closest friend at the time, so coming face to face with a demon in the flickering light of a bonfire can still be fun. Dean seemed distant the entire night, and it wasn't until the mead ran out that he decided to tell me he was moving to Iowa in the morning. He didn't want to sour what would be our last night together by telling me, but his mind kept returning to a feeling that his current chapter here was going to end that night. His relationship with his girlfriend had fallen apart, and he cried about her every time something reminded him of her. She was a crystal-gripping hippie, and every pixie that walked by us made him start sobbing. I eventually broke away from our camp and tried to get lost in the night. My increasingly sour attitude made the overstimulating brush of Renaissance creatures impossible to deal with. By some miracle, I found the parking lot and slept in my car. I didn't even look for Dean in the morning. He was supposed to catch the Greyhound early, and I wasn't interested in extending our awkward goodbye. My relationship with Megan had already soured as I spent more and more of the day intoxicated, pretending to be Jim Morrison. Before I knew it, the band house was empty, and I was alone. The drugs and alcohol that fueled creative nights behind an instrument were now just lonely nights curled around a cold porcelain toilet, wondering where I'd go next. This is the risk one takes when adulthood freedom and responsibility are unbalanced. That was why you and my brother wanted me to do something else. It was a more guaranteed long-term success if I followed a more realistic career path. My depression roared back as I became overburdened with the weight of my ignored responsibility and the realization that both of you were right. I was depressed that I had ignored your advice, done it my way, and failed exactly as predicted. To make matters worse, I was also now addicted to drugs. You had moved to the corporate offices in Texas, and I moved back with you to get clean. You didn't know any of this, of course. All you knew was that I was failing my classes, and you were pissed that I had no direction. I started playing open mic nights in the city, trying to meet other musicians and get another band started. My performances garnered local attention, and I managed to headline a concert as a solo performer. A few popular bands were opening for me, and I was enjoying the company of everyone that had come out to support us. I had an open tab at the venue's bar, and I drank straight whiskey for three hours, waiting for my turn to take the stage. The bartender had cut me off by the time my set started, and I blacked out halfway through the first song. I don't remember the rest of the night, but I'm told it did not go well. I stopped getting gigs after that and had to go back to the open mic circuit. After embarrassing myself on the whiskey night, I took the music more seriously. I put together a solid 30-minute set of interesting compositions. I was pushing my limits of technicality and creative writing. I worked hard on the set and was looking forward to sharing it with people. I don't invite anyone to open mics, the entire event is somewhat embarrassing, but this particular evening I had invited loads of people. I wanted to showcase the new stuff, win back some support from the community, and get on to playing real shows again. The night before the open mic, you asked me to pick you up from the airport at 8 p.m., right in the middle of the set I had planned. I told you I couldn't do it and explained I would be playing a show I had worked on obsessively for weeks. I was relatively certain we had clarified that I would, most definitely, not be picking you up. The show was terrific, I was sober, and I nailed every little trick I planned. There were guitar loops that required precise timing, 
or the rhythms would quickly break down into nonsensical noise, but they all hit right on cue. I had bent the circuits in a few small toys, manipulating the sounds they could make, and had them running through the pickups of my guitar. Those who didn't like the music I played that night were still intrigued by the artistic performance. Curious people swarmed me for the rest of the night, and I felt like I was in heaven. I also noted that I had several missed calls from you. I finally broke away from the crowd and checked my phone. Your voicemail started with, Hey D, just landed. Where are you? The messages got angrier and the attacks more personal as you waited longer. You ungrateful little shit. All I asked of you was to pick me up. Etc, etc. The high I was riding quickly faded, and I coped with it the only way I knew. I went to the venue's bar and ordered a glass of whiskey on ice. Seeing the drink in my hand disappointed everyone who came out that night to support me in turning a new leaf. I decided I'd be out of your house before you even woke up the next day. I left a note apologizing for not being there. I attempted to clarify that I thought you were aware of my plans and knew I wouldn't be there. I packed my things and left. I didn't have much money, but I had enough to rent a storage shed. As Scoundrel Pop was dissolving and the members were moving out of the house, we had a short stint in one of these storage sheds. I asked the manager if that unit was still available, and as luck would have it, it was. It was almost poetic, coming back to this place like it held some energy from the life I longed for, but all that was left was the faded scoundrel pop chalk art we had drawn on the back of the wall. I sat in my new home, looking at the faded rainbow of remaining art. It was cold, and everything smelled like dirt. I had a mattress in one corner, a TV with built-in VHS, an empty bottle of tequila rose, and a bunch of random instruments. The scale was no longer tilted, finely balanced, with no freedom or responsibility. I got a respiratory infection by the second night, and as I slowly died, I wondered how long it would take management to check my unit. Maybe it would take a month when the rent was due, and they were coming to throw away the things I had abandoned. How appropriate it would be that I'd be found amongst all those forgotten things. The storage shed wasn't all that bad, if I'm being honest. There were plenty of times we had not gotten along and I sought shelter elsewhere. Usually, I had a friend's couch or a nice lady I could stay with, but the stress of intruding on people led me to find more creative places to sleep while only needing to borrow a quick shower. The most reliable spot I found was the chemical engineering building on campus. There was an unlocked entrance in the basement that would lead to the upper floors. The third floor was the darkest, and it had flat upholstered couches. I would take just a pillow and blanket with me. I'd leave all my valuables in the car, but getting robbed seemed unlikely. Most people didn't know how to get to the basement entrance, and anyone who saw me inside would assume I was a stressed-out, hard-working engineering major. The storage shed seemed comfortably luxurious in comparison. I had been in the shed for a few weeks when I ran into Jesse at the Revolution Bar. Jesse, you'll remember as one of my friends in high school, the one that we recorded a skit of us kidnapping him in his underwear only for him to escape from the trunk of my car and run half-naked across Main Street toward the high school. He and his girlfriend had just lost their roommate and offered me the extra room. Jesse was also working with Chuck cleaning out vacant apartments and maintaining the lawns until a new tenant would move in. His roommate leaving also created a vacancy on Chuck's crew. The apartment was nice and clean. It was much more than I needed to survive. The job was quite interesting too. I learned a lot on that job as Chuck had us doing all sorts of random home maintenance tasks. My life had suddenly improved drastically. When I was home, I mostly kept to myself in my room, and Jesse stayed in his room with his girl. They started bringing their private lives into the shared living space more often as we grew more comfortable. They were doing drugs, which I was sure of, but I didn't know what they were taking and honestly didn't care. Chuck would pick us up from the apartment at 6 a.m. 
and Jesse was getting harder to wake up each day. I told Chuck what was going on, and he told me not to worry about it. We'd go without him. Chuck didn't talk much. We'd either sit in silence or listen to talk radio as we drove from location to location. I'd try to comment on the world events they were covering, but he'd often only reply with the occasional grunt or nod. The only times he spoke were to tell me what to do or to offer some sage-like advice that I'd never be prepared for or appreciate until much later. Jesse hadn't been to work in two weeks, so I knew he wouldn't have the money to pay rent. When the time to pay rent came, he mysteriously had the money, but he seemed stressed. I recognized the look, he was selling drugs, and those drugs were running out. If he continued to miss work, he would have to increase his sales. More strangers were coming around our apartment. A random dude had been asleep on our couch going on three days straight, and Jesse was no longer keeping any of his actions private. They were selling methamphetamines and were planning their next cook. Considering I was on the lease, they were thoughtful enough to ensure I was cool with them cooking meth in our kitchen. They told me the story of where they had stayed before their current apartment and even took me to the blackened burned-out hole where their last cook had gone horribly wrong. They wanted me to be fully aware of the risks involved and promised not to do it if I wasn't okay with it. For the record, I was unequivocally and undeniably against it. Unfortunately, that considerate attitude was for show. They were going to do whatever they wanted anyway. Now they would have to figure out how to pull it off without me knowing or just kick me out. Ultimately, they chose to try to get me addicted to meth, figuring the rest would fall into place naturally. One night, I was writing music in my room when I heard a knock at the front door. I had the apartment to myself, and I wasn't expecting anyone. I figured they had come to see Jesse and would eventually leave when I didn't answer. Then the doorbell rang, and I heard someone call my name. Damn Reluctantly, I put my guitar on its stand and pulled on a dirty t-shirt. I opened the door, and a shifty-eyed dude who looked to be my age quickly asked, Hey, you're Jesse's friend, right? Yeah. What's up? I asked as my position in the doorway felt increasingly less safe. Yo, dude, I need a ride. Can you help me out? He asked. I looked over my shoulder and nodded toward nothing. Aw oh, man, I'm right in the middle of something. I can't, dude. Sorry. Listen, man, I just need a ride there. You don't even have to wait around. It's just down to the highway. I can give you some gas money. It'll take two minutes. He pressed his hands together as if praying to the gods of Mooching. I begrudgingly accepted his offer, but I didn't invite him in. I told him to wait outside, and I'd be right out. We talked about our mutual friend and other random small talk as we drove toward the highway. I also noticed he was staying clear of saying anything about what I was about to be an accomplice in. We made our destination under the overpass of the highway, but nobody was there. I suddenly got the awful gut feeling that I was about to be mugged, and he would steal my car and leave my body on the side of the road. I tried to suppress my flinch as he suddenly turned to me. Dude, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate it. He opened the door and got halfway out of the car before turning around and handing me three dollars for gas and a tiny sealed plastic bag. I took what he handed me without giving it much thought as I was still waiting for him to surprise me with what would be the murder weapon, and I didn't want to seem ungrateful that he was letting me live. I sped away with my life as I watched his baggy clothes slowly fade away in my rearview mirror. I was still waiting for the trap to spring, but nothing happened. I just drove away, strictly obeying all traffic laws. I eventually found myself safely back home with three dollars and what turned out to be a small bag of meth. I ran to my room, locked the door behind me, and emptied my pockets onto the bed. I laughed at the small bag. Who gives someone meth as a thank you for a ride without asking if you'd like to have that meth? There was no way I would use it. I didn't even know how to use it. I couldn't sell it because I had no idea if this meth was any good or even real, for that matter. 
I also didn't know how much this amount of meth would cost. I would have to ask Jesse. It was later that evening when I finally heard him come home. I grabbed the bag and ran out to the living room. This silly bag had now become a major interest of mine the longer I spent with it. Hey yo. I said as I came out of my room. I have a question for you. I handed him the bag. What do you think of this? I think it's cute. He said, examining the bag. Where'd you get it? Some dude came by looking for you and asked for a ride. I took him, and he gave me that, I said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told him you might be home. He just made this stuff and is trying to get rid of it as soon as possible. I've been wanting to try it. He said, as he headed to his room and loudly yelled from behind his door. You ever tried this stuff before? No, never. I said truthfully. I had grown a sense of ownership over this bag and wanted something for it. How much do you think I could sell it for? The rummaging ended briefly in his room, and he stuck his head through the doorway. Ha. For this. Five bucks. There's enough in here for a couple of hits. He dipped back into his room for a few more seconds and then returned with a long, thin glass pipe with a round bulb at the end. You might as well just smoke it. Do you mind if I try it out? Realizing my new meth business wouldn't be as profitable as I had imagined, I just let him have my once highly valued treasure. I watched him pass the flame under the bulb, rocking it back and forth slowly until my hard-earned prize began to smoke. He cleared the smoke and then handed it to me. At that moment, I was confronted with the very real possibility of smoking meth. I was safe at home, everything had been prepared for me, and now all I had to do was breathe in. In that split second, I decided to just go for it and see what all the fuss was about. And I smoked meth for the first time.